You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in West Cork, I investigate stories of the strange uh, with an attitude that I hope you will find to be critical but never cynical. This episode is all about Irish burial customs, superstitions and traditions associated with death and burial and funerals and wakes and all that good stuff here in Ireland. Before we get to that, I have some updates. What has been happening in the world of the strange? Well, did anybody see Godzilla vs. Kong? That that happened. And it was just as silly and as over the top as perhaps we all needed right now. And the only thing I'm going to say about it now is, wasn't it amazing to see Hollow Earth done with such an amazing budget and such a big such a you know such a certain amount of skill and um, and visual effects so even if everything else in the film was incredibly stupid (laughs) it was nice to see that which is one of my most favorite of all uh, weird theories it was fun to see the hollow earth on the big screen I'm wondering and I'm racking my brains on this is this the single largest audience that this idea will ever have had in in its entire history going back to uh well, depending on where you want to put it, you know, hundreds of years, 1830s with John Cleve Sims. I can't think of a, a, a more large-scale mainstream event which has ever featured this idea. I could be wrong. By all means, get in touch. As always, if you have any ideas, on Twitter we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. couple of thanks to some folks. Thanks to Pete for buying me a coffee over at buymeacoffee forward slash... Uh, wide Atlantic and no weird Pete if you're if you're listening and you can you want to tell us where you're listening from that would be fun uh, Pete goodness I don't have the comment on me I, I believe he said something like um would you please talk about the terror <laughs> it's always fun to 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 hear about men who ate their own shoes which is of course a reference to uh, Captain John Franklin who was known in his day as the man who ate his own shoes what I think I might do someday and I'm only just formulating this plan is I might try and do the the kind of polar gothic stuff and the hollow earth stuff in one and try and cover both with an episode all about um, the Admiral Byrd story, the, the story that Admiral Byrd, either in the 1930s or 1940s, went through one of the holes in the poles at the at the top of the earth and uh, came inside the hollow earth. And what did he find there? Well, Nazis, of course. I mean, what else? What else would you expect besides, you know, giant apes that have throne rooms except Nazis at the centre of the earth? Even when Gary Busey, or Jake Busey, I should say, was not involved. And that's a bad movie reference to any fans of the Asylum out there. So thanks to Pete for the coffee. That's a long-winded way of saying it. Thanks to Owen for buying one of the mugs. You can also buy mugs and t-shirts with our wonderful logo on them, of course. And uh, somewhere online is a picture of Owen rocking the mug on his front porch, I think in New York State. Correct me if I'm wrong. I can't keep up. I don't know where you are now. I think it's New York. So big time thanks to all those folks around the world for listening in and sending me some fun stuff. I have a correction to make. So you may remember the um, very in-depth episode I did about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Not so much because I'm into doing movie reviews, but because I'm very interested in how like, ideas of the strange uh, leech from pop culture into reality. And I talked a lot about how a lot of the ideas in that film, um, that film really helped to popularize a lot of key elements of ufology, specifically the idea and the image of the alien grey. And one of the things I said in that episode was that the one of the 
the ufologist in the film, the character Lacan, who's the French ufologist, I said on the episode that he was based on Jacques Vallée, a, a famous French ufologist who's still around and still saying deeply weird stuff on uh, Joe Rogan podcasts and that sort of thing. This has been the conventional wisdom for a long time. It has long been presumed that this character in the movie was based on Valet, and you can read that pretty much anywhere, except I've been reading Mark O'Connell's book, The Close Encounters Man, which is his biography of J. Allen Hynek, the guy who did, you know, all the investigations for Project Blue Book from about 1948 or 1949, um, and for, for several decades after that, and then founded uh, his own unit, Kufos or Kufos, uh, UFO research organization after that and in the in that book which which I do recommend it's great fun I'm learning an awful lot um, O'Connell says that he has an old interview with J. Allen Hynek where he's asked this very question about this character Lacan and uh, instead of saying instead of saying that it was based on Jacques Vallée uh, it was based on this other French ufologist Claude Poer who was well known at the time but probably isn't as well known now or at least he's not, you know, still on the circuit like Valet is, and he's still not making a name for himself. And this is old news to some of you, I'm sure. This book came out in 2017. I just, it had never, I'd never picked up on this, so I do want to make that correction. Uh, but there was some back and forth between O'Connell and Valet about this. Apparently there was some feathers ruffled. I think it was very important to Valet's own sort of sense of self that he be the inspiration for this character in such a well-known and influential film. And I think he didn't really like the idea that maybe it wasn't him. I think myself there's probably a bit of both and I think that the, char the character isn't very strongly drawn. I don't think he's necessarily supposed to be anybody in particular. I just think the idea that there was a well-known French ufologist at the time, who was big in pop culture, makes you think of Valet, but, uh, you know, the word from the horse's mouth from J. Allen Hynek himself, you know, you're, some call him our UFO dad, <laughs> was that he was based at least partly on this other guy, Claude Poor. So again, roundabout way of saying, hey, I get things wrong sometimes, I'm always happy to correct. Oh, and I have a, a musical recommendation, which I, I don't get to make these very often because there aren't that many folks making music or 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 sounds that are sort of related to ghost stories or myths and monsters but uh, i've come across an album by a scottish artist by the name of everyday dust and they have an album called black water and it's all about the loch ness monster and it is it is that sort of ambient music that i've been talking about recently i've been kind of getting interested in this it's it's very synthy it's very electronic and um, all of the tracks are based on things like, you know, murky, mysterious depths and the sounds of 1970s sonar tech and all of that sort of thing. So if you're a fan of that kind of that 1970s resurgence in interest in Nessie and the various eccentric characters who went after them, if you're a fan of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World or in America, you might have been a fan of In Search Of, that sort of thing. Um, and you like watching those old documentaries with that sort of vibe and, you know, that very particular musical style that they use. This album hints at that. It's more it's more cinematic than it is kind of trying to recreate that 70s sound, but there is definitely a dose of that in there as well. So do check it out. That's called Black Water by Everyday Dust. It goes into the see, rather small category of sort of cryptid themed albums. And of course, I have a drink with me today. I've put it down here somewhere amongst all the books in the cabin, and I haven't seen it for a few minutes now. I've just realized, but somewhere in here with me, I have a little glass of Hyde whiskey. So that's what I'm going to be enjoying during this interview. So 
that's enough ins and outs for the beginning. This episode, very, very pleased to say I have a fantastic guest. That guest is Dr. Aoife Vrithnak, historian and reader of Filthy Books and the host of the fabulous Censored podcast, a podcast where she reads dirty books so you don't have to although you probably, you might want to after you hear a few episodes. So we're going to be talking about Irish burial customs, stuff associated with death, graves, and those wonderful wakes that we hear so much about. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. What I am trying to do in a moment of madness, I decided that I would read the blacklist of uh, banned publications created by the Irish censor. The reason this is a moment of madness is because there's 12,000 items on it. So I've managed about 45 of them, so I'm doing well in a year. And the idea of the podcast, which is called Censored, is to look at these books and try and work out what in God's name was offensive to the Irish censor about this book at this particular time. There are lots of different types of books. So, you know, there are memoirs. I'm going to be talking about Errol Flynn's memoir next season. Yes. Um, yes, I know. It's called My Wicked, Wicked, wicked Ways. Ways. Yes. <laughs> Man, think, it's some read. Before, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. So you can look at books like that. And then, of course, you've the very, very serious books that were banned, you know, the famous classics. There's Orwell and Hemingway and name any 20th century writer worth their salt and they're on the list. So you can choose anything. And that's what I like to do. I like to pick a random selection. So I've covered The Werewolf of Paris, for example, which is, you know, one of the first werewolf tales in modern horror. Um, and then I can cover Dennis Wheatley with his black magic weirdness. And then we can cover Samuel Beckett and James Joyce and everybody. And I have a lot of guests and they're great. They're very funny people and they know lots about the books. And the idea is that we play censorship bingo at the end. That's a very important feature where we tick off just how rude we think it is. Um, and Dennis Wheatley didn't do too badly, really. Um, but I didn't, I don't think I had a square for Satanism. I think that's a flaw. <laughs> He's quite conservative, really, in, in, the, in the scheme of what, what you're looking at sometimes. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the rudest one of all was James Joyce's Ulysses, which ticks every box and many more boxes that I wouldn't even have thought of. So, you know, it varies. Some of them are incredibly rude and some of them were really very mild books that the censor disliked because they offered people ideas or challenges to the social order. They're not necessarily rude. So you can have fun working out what was rude about a book, even if it's just talking about jazz music, which was apparently degenerate. <laughs> One of the things I do enjoy about it is, is the balance between sometimes you're covering stuff which is a bit lowbrow or a bit, you know, a bit of pulp or kind of slightly silly fiction. And then you're also hitting those, those heavy hitters, those kind of quote unquote li literary classics. And I never know what, what, the, what the angle is going to be. So I think one of my favorite episodes was the one you did about Catcher in the Rye, which I, th I thought, oh, surely now, because I, I liked it when I was a kid, you know, I read it at the right age and I thought, oh, I bet it really hasn't held up. And, and you, you guys like, 
I really, I really liked your take on it. There was a lot of, <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of heart in that episode. <laughs> yeah, because I got someone who really enjoyed The Catcher in the Rye to come on and talk to me about it because I will admit straight out that I really disliked it when I read it. <laughs> and although I admire it as a work of art, it doesn't speak to me personally still. So it is important sometimes I think I get people in who just love a book and who are like, oh my God, I have to tell you why it's so cool. And then they say, yeah, okay, this bit's a bit crap and it's a bit weird, but, <laughs> and that's the best part about it for me. So one of the other things I like about the show is, you know, you, you get a sense of what Irish society might've been like, um, you know, during the, mostly during the 20th century is, is the period you're covering during the time when I'm, um, obviously we, we were extremely Catholic and, um, you know, the church was a very powerful uh, force in society. And, and, and from that, uh, spinning on to what we're going to talk about today, which is sort of like um, Irish burial customs and, and stuff like that. And the, the suggestion we had originally uh, for this topic was to start off by talking about a, of all things, a, a Hellboy story. Now I have the book here. It's uh, from a, a collection. I think they call them. I think if you're trying to be proper comic people, you call them trade trade paperbacks. Is what oh, okay. <laughs> is what they're called. Um, I wouldn't know anything about that. No comics or comics. Uh, the Chained Coffin and Others is the name of the collection, and the first story in it is called The Corpse. And uh, Mike Mignola, the guy who writes and um, and and draws Hellboy, is is clearly a folklore aficionado. He, he he takes um, lots of things from around the world and there's a lot of kind of folkloric creatures in all of his story. And basically Hellboy, as far as I can tell from this volume, um, like he kind of traipses around the world during the 20th century at different times, beating up <laughs> folkloric entities from around the world <laughs> with his giant hellish fist. And um, this short story, The Corpse, he says, is based partly on an Irish folktale called Teg O'Kane and the Corpse, which I think we're going to talk about. And the, to, to cut a long story short, uh, Hellboy is brought in by this family in Ireland who uh, they're, they're concerned that their baby child has been snatched by the, the little people and has been replaced by what turns out to be a changeling. And in order to get the child back, Hellboy has to kind of go through this sort of folkloric story where he travels across the Irish countryside over the course of an evening with a corpse um, clinging around his neck like like the albatross in the <laughs> in, in the rhyme of the ancient mariner and the corpse is like talking to him and, and saying unhelpful things and over the course of the night he has to take it to three different churches and defeat three different sort of folkloric creatures uh, along the way in order to rescue the child and as far as I can tell um, Mignola is like taking bits and pieces from different different folk tales here it's not just uh, Tago Cain and the corpse but uh, I thought we could let that be our entry into uh, this world of your your expertise. Well that particular story that he has borrowed which is in Irish it's or originally in Irish called Tago Cahoin Agasan Carpon is so good and I recommend everybody to read it because it's just wild and it was published by uh, Douglas Hyde originally in the late 19th century, Oscailga, and then it was translated later by him in Irish, uh, by him into English, and it appears in WB Yeats folklore and things like that. So you can find it quite easily. You'll also find it online if you do a good Google search. But it's just a great story and really unusual, actually, because corpses in Irish folklore are not generally fully intact talking creatures. Um, the dead 
don't really appear in that manner. They appear as spirits or um, they may seem real and human, but they don't persist in that, that vision. But this corpse is a very stubborn individual that actually, as you say, is, is like a limpet on the back of, <laughs> of Hellboy and he's trying to get rid of it. And in the original story, the Hellboy figure is Taigo Cahoyne or Ty Kane. And he's a bit of a wild boy and he's been misbehaving a lot. He's a, he's a rogue. He's a bit of a Jack the Lad and he's having a great time and his dad loves him and it's all fine until he gets a local girl in trouble or should we say damages her reputation oh. and his father. Well, we know what that means. Of course, I mean, she's pregnant in, in the family ways, as they would have said. <laughs> exactly. And uh, his father finally loses patience and says, right, me boyo, it's time for you to settle down. you got to marry this girl. It's over. None of this, because this is just too much. It's too far. And he's like, okay, yeah, I like my father. I actually really like this girl. I don't mind. But then, of course, because he's young and thick, he's like, ah, I don't want to do that. That sucks. I love my life right now. I have a great time. And so he's wandering the countryside in a sulk. Um, and he is met, he is hiding in a ditch and he hears a group coming towards him. So, of course, because the biggest problem in Irish folklore is wandering the roads on your own. Anyone who reads Irish folklore is if you're on your own on a road, bad things will happen. You often meet the puka, you meet a man on a horse who says strange things, the fairies in all their forms. It's a bad place to be. So he hides um, and he sees four figures carrying something but of course they know he's there so he's called out and he's like oh no what's going to happen and it turns out that they are insisting that he will do this job of burying a corpse and they are four fairies and they're like you're doing this right now he tries to get out of it he fails and that's the part that was taken for hellboy was this vicious limpet like corpse stuck on the back so Taigo Kane has to wander the countryside trying to bury the corpse. Does it have the, the sort of, you know, the, the standard like three, the tripartite structure that's in the Hellboy story where he has to go to three different churches or? Yes, yes. In fact, I think it's four okay. in the original. Um, and they're really interesting the way that the churchyards or the burial grounds, as they're called in the, in the tale, are represented. So some of them are clearly former religious sites because they're called chample, which means temple, which means church. So, and they have ruined church buildings on them. And the very first one he goes to is just brilliant. I, you'll tell me now, cause you have the book, whether this is what happens in Hellboy, but he goes to the first one and the church is a bit falling down. So he opens the door and he pries up one of the flagstones in front of the altar. Yes, yes. Yes. Oh, yes, there it is. Brilliant. Very evocatively drawn. Um, and in, in the comic, a sort of a, like a, a, and like a knight comes up out of the ground. He's, he, he's almost drawn so that he looks a bit like a Templar. Uh, <laughs> that's probably from Chample. He, oh, yeah, because yeah, the yeah. word Chample looks like Templar. Yeah. So he would probably twisted that. Um, but in the original, he's not anything special except a dead body. So Taig opens this grave starts digging and uh, this bloke sits up and starts roaring at him <laughs> and he's like, oh no, oh my God, what am I going to do? So he 
kind of waits around a bit, tries again, and he still jumps up. So he decides, I have to close this grave, covers him over, moves on. And he tries throughout the church. And each time there's a, a bothersome, loud corpse shouting and roaring at him to get out of the way because it's full. It's full is the, the message. And one of the things about Irish churchyards and Irish burial customs is that we reuse the same space over and over and over again. So the most venerable churchyards have been in use for hundreds of years continuously. So they're always full of bodies of one kind or another. But in this story, the problem with these bodies is they're fully fleshed. You should never be digging up people when they have flesh on the bones. Oh. It is... Ex- is that like a, like a symbol of they're not, they're not old enough, they've not been in there long enough, right? Yeah, so hmm. digging up a grave, you know, to put your granny in, if there's no one been buried there for 30 years, the bones are quite bony at that point. So hmm. you can um, just kind of push them to one side. But if they're fleshed, then not so good. In the original story, is there a significance to like the differences between the, the chapels or church, churchyards that he goes to? Um, Yes, I think that's what's really fascinating about it is how it uh, preserves some of the differentiation and geography in burial places. So some of them have a ruined church in the centre, which is a very common thing in rural Ireland where you're driving along a road and you see just like a gable end of a ruined building. And that's a churchyard, a very, very old churchyard. So that's two of them. But two of the others have nothing to show that they are burial grounds. They just have stones around the edges. And it's only when Tyg approaches with the corpse that they become alive and Hmm. ghosts and fire appear to keep him and the corpse out. So they don't look different. Like they're they're missing the signposts. I'm just showing you in the book here, the the final place that he goes to... Uh. Is, yeah. is, is like some sort of rocky pagan sh- looking shrine. And he made a hellboy says something like, I thought we were looking for a Christian burial ground. So, I, it, well, it, it's as if the idea is like, he's going to these older and older and older places of worship until he gets to the pre-Christian because what yeah. he's dealing with is the, the Dina Sheha. So they are, they are somehow a pre-Christian force. I, I yeah, know, that's... Maybe that's one interpretation of it. It's, it's a perfectly valid way of looking at it. Um, I thought the last place they were taken to, he was taken to and finally disposes of the corpse, which is described as quite remote and, like you say, bare, rocky. It's even less like a burial place. Here, sorry, I've got the mix. Uh, I think this is the last one, yeah. Oh, yeah, very, very mountainous. Very austere. Yeah, very ruined, very ancient. I thought in some ways it mimicked uh, the Killeen these burial grounds that are on the very limits of um, cultivated land in rural Ireland and which have become very well known recently because we're talking so much about the burial of infants and they are associated with uh, infant burial. And it sounded to me almost like a Killeen. It was so far removed from, you know, everywhere and where people lived. And it didn't, it didn't really, it just, the way it was described, that's how it came across to me. Um, which is, that's my interpretation of that story, the way that the burial grounds are described. They seem to represent quite important features in actual burial landscape as we know it today. 
Excellent. Um, I wonder, could we say a little bit about the, the, the spirit in which these folk tales were written up at the time? So it's, it's sort of, did you say it was mid, mid 19th century? So it's later? a late 19th century collection. Um, Douglas Hyde was, as a lot of us would know, he's quite important in the Gaelic revival, which is part of a European wide movement to gather folk information, folk tales, folk customs, because there was a great fear that modernization was proceeding at such a pace that all of these things were vanishing. Um, and in Ireland, it's particularly poignant, of course, because the language is fading from first use in large parts of the country and also beginning to fade as a second language too. So there's a real kind of rush to gather as much as what people could. Hyde is collecting in Roscommon and Leitrim around there. And in fact, he was one of the last speakers of the Roscommon dialect in Irish. Uh, because it faded earlier in Roscommon than other counties. So he collected these stories and he compiled them, like I say, as part of this folk preservation project. And they were published and he's then involved in setting up the Gaelic League in which people are trying to learn Irish. So it's part of that recreation and rediscovery of uh, native, if you want to put it in quotes, native Irish uh, traditions. Excellent. I, I keep threatening to do an episode on like Yeats and his mysticism and <laughs> how, how you so uh, should. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, it's such a big, you know, when someone a topic is so big, you're afraid to take the first bite. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the man pushed Alistair Crowley down the stairs of the Golden Dawn. <laughs> and that's, that's the, that, maybe that's the place to start. Um, let's talk start about, there. let's talk about burial traditions and, um, you, you know, is, is there some, are there some elements in these stories of, of things that were really actual traditions that um, you, you've researched or come across? What I really liked about Tyg's burdensome corpse is the idea that the dead demand things of the living, <laughs> you know? Um, it's not just that you should do something for good manners, but there is a real, you know, metaphysical reason why you do things the right way because the dead are potentially dangerous if you don't do the right things and you can't get rid of them that easily. You have to follow the rules. Um, now in Tyg's case, it is unusual that the dead are actually sitting on his shoulder and telling him what to do. And that's part of his punishment for being a bold boy. So it's set <laughs> within that context. Um, but in most folk beliefs about the dead they're not actually physically burdensome but they are bearers of good and bad luck so if you don't treat them right and if you don't do all of the right things by the dead and by the burial um, you will be haunted or quite possibly die yourself of course because death is seen as somehow catching like a form of bad luck particularly fatal bad luck so if you don't bury them right you'll die too it's the fact that he's he's corporeal is that because I mean Ireland does have obviously ghost stories and and like the, the dead will come back in the form of spirits in various ways or or curses or bad luck but is it unusual that he is a physical like zombie like body that is that what's what's unique here or yeah that is pretty unusual <laughs> there aren't many stories collected in the modern period that feature the dead quite so enfleshed and nice. annoying because in a way, of course, he's a fairy dead as well. And there are the fairies, whenever they, you know, choose to 
become corporeal are often very heavy and people can't put them down. You know, mm. there is that element in other stories, um, like fairy children are very, very heavy. And, mm. you know, even though they're very thin and underdeveloped looking, they are actually enormous weight to carry. So Never it's kind of borrowing from that. So like changelings and stuff, would, would, would the weight be a giveaway? That you had well, it's one of many giveaways <laughs> in in the story he um he confronts the changeling child with um an iron horseshoe and he gets a reaction out of it that way ah uh, yes of course that's very important <laughs> there are ways to force changelings to uh reveal themselves and that was i don't know if you've done an episode yet on the burning of bridget cleary but that is the quintessential changeling story now yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is a fascinating one. Again, it's it's one I, I want to do justice to. So I need, I want to make sure I have like like a really good, really knowledgeable person to talk about it. Or uh, I've got I've got to get a hold of the book myself. Actually, oh, it's a great book. So good. Everyone should read it. Really good. <laughs> I'll, I'll put that in the in the show notes. Uh, just very quickly, in case any we have people listening from places that are not Ireland. So we'll just make, do you want to quickly explain that one very very shortly, just so people know. Yeah, the burning of Bridget Cleary has become a very well known story recently because there was a great book produced called The Burning of Bridget Cleary uh, some years ago and which was an attempt to explore what was a murder case. I can't even remember the date now because I am such a bad historian, can't remember dates. Um, 18, so 1880s or 90s I think. Yeah I think it's the 1880s. Yeah um, and so this woman, a married woman, was burnt to death by her husband and some of her extended family in her own home. Um, and it's a really grotesque crime. But what the author was trying to do was explain how this particular killing happened in the context of fairy lore and changelings. And that was part of the explanation advanced by the killers was that she was not really Bridget Cleary. She was a changeling and that they were trying to drive the changeling out and you know, bring Bridget back by these trials of fire and these trials of suffering. So fairy lore is absolutely part of the story, but historians also say, well, look, it's also about gender and family politics and dynamics and money, of course, always money and violence. So it's a really, really great book. It's really easy to read and beautifully written. So you know, get your hands on it if you can. I feel as though I've come across the story in like like English writings from from about that time and newspapers and stuff where they say, oh, look, look, they use it as an example of, you know, the strange beliefs that are still extant in crazy wild places like Ireland, you know, in, in as late a day as the 1880s. Um, yeah. But as you say, like it, that, that's the simplest, flattest way of looking at it without taking in all the other all the other social stuff. Yeah. So what is the place of, of death and, and funerals and, and burials in, in Irish folklore and traditions? What? Tell us a little bit about that. One of the most important things about the Irish tradition that lasted longer than in other parts of Europe, it was the wake and the keening. And part of the reason they last longer is that under the Reformation, particularly in England, things like wakes are seen as disorderly religious conduct. So they start to fade as Protestant beliefs percolate through the society. But as we know, in Ireland, it's a majority Catholic country. So there isn't that incentive to change over to a new way of treating the dead. 
Um, so awake is a three-day period after death. In, and it has a very particular pattern as well. You know, I know everybody's image is of lots of drinking, but that only builds up by day three. Day right. one is not everybody getting wasted. No. <laughs> day one is quite solemn. <laughs> you know, so there are like, it's, it's an expression of hospitality on behalf of the corpse. And it is envisaged that the corpse is the host as well. Mm. It might, yeah, you see, you would be thinking, isn't it the relations who pay for the drink? <laughs> and you're like, well, yes. But the person in their lifetime would have saved in order to provide for their burial and their wake. So it is their party. Okay. I, I've never been to one that it was so elaborate, like that was, that was three days. Does that still happen? No, that is not common anymore because we have the removal to the church. Um, and that was brought in partly to end wakes in that people would be brought to the church and then a funeral mass be held over them. But really, to be honest, the priests are quite marginal still in popular Irish uh, burial customs. The funeral mass is a very late addition, mostly because people couldn't afford it. I mean, people have to pay for mass, okay? <laughs> and in the past, they paid a lot for mass. Right. Um, so what, what, what used to happen prior to this? What was the common setup? Well, the common setup would be that the priest would come to the house and say prayers or be part of prayers. Um, but a full mass wasn't really standard until the mid, even the mid-20th century in some parts of the country. Um, because masses were, of course, there was a high mass and then there was a low mass and there was how much you were willing to pay. So it wasn't affordable for a lot of people to have a mass. Uh, how the priest would be involved if they weren't involved in mass was that they would bless clay brought to the parochial house and that clay would be then put into the coffin. And this is also a way of consecrating the grave space um, because consecration is, of course, very important, but in old grave sites, it's not always clear where, you know, places begin and end and they're a bit higgledy-piggledy and they're not very kind of formal. So in order to ensure that people are being buried in a consecrated space, you consecrate the clay that goes into the coffin and bingo, it's done, magic. Mm. Um, and that was quite common to ensure, you know, just be doubly sure that things were okay. So that would be the way the priests would be involved, really. Or perhaps standing at the graveside and saying prayers. But that's not mass, you see. It's not mass in church. That's just prayers. Right. Um, and there were sometimes prayers said in, like in Latin or in English, depending on what part of the country you're in. It can be very local too. Hmm. So in terms of sort of superstitions around graveyards or uh, the recently deceased or, or coffins, I, I feel like most of the stuff I've heard is from mostly like British books I read as a kid, you know, like the pan ghost stories books and mm. there would always be um, some folkloric stuff in there like walking, you know what the Scots call Widdershins, walking Widdershins around the Kirk and, and there was, yeah. you know, you walk, you walk the wrong way around, which is um, like uh, anti-clockwise, I suppose. Um, yes. And like the, the devil will appear to you or something like that. Did we, ha did we have anything similar yeah, we do, actually. Um, like I said, it's very local and 
these things pop up all over the country in different forms. But walking around the graveyard three times before burial is a reasonably common and rec recorded superstition. Um, one that seems to exist across Britain and Ireland is that it's unlucky to meet a funeral if you don't walk with it. So you have to follow it for a distance. Um, some say three steps minimum, because of course three is the magic number, one of the big <laughs> magic numbers in folklore. Uh, so three steps. Um, there are ones that are quite, I, that I haven't come across as much in England to do with family expressions of devotion. So to carry the coffin from the house uh, would be men of the same name as the deceased. So that's part of family traditions. And the people who dig the grave are supposed to be the same name as the deceased. Mm. Up until recently, certainly in very rural graveyards, like there weren't grave diggers per se. It, everything was dug on the day when people arrived, um, mm. which also shows you how shallow the graves were as well, you know, because Ooh. it could be done quickly enough <laughs> with a group of men that you would have a burial in the same day. Um, yeah, you know, all of this depth is a new concept. <laughs> be, be done quickly enough in time for pints. Uh, tell, uh, us yes. about, tell us about the keening. Uh, yes, so keening is part of the morning part of the, the wake. So the wake has the morning aspects and then it has the riotous aspects when people dance around and play ridiculous games and play pranks on each other. But the keening is the very serious part of the wake. And a keen was a form of extemporized poetry performed by women. And it's always performed by women as well. In burial customs, men and women play very specific roles. Women wash the body and dress the body. Men carry the corpse, men dig the grave. You know, there are different rules for different genders. So keening was really distinctive in Irish culture, like English speakers found it really very, very strange and really remarkable. And tourists always talked about keening. Hmm. It just appears in loads of stories, like even if not fully described, but just as this sound is very... Is it analogous to, uh, uh, haven't there been cultures where like the like professional women who would cry or mourn loudly at a, at a funeral, is it, is it connected to that at all? Yes, because there were professionals that people would bring in to create these keens. So the keen is not just a cry, but also a series of laments about the person. So it's not just a, you know, a wordless cry although that is a really important part of it. And that's what they always describe in the tourist uh, viewpoint is this it's, it's wild and, and dramatic. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I mean, professional crying people exist in lots of funeral cultures. It's yeah. not a specifically Irish concept at all. Um, but the keen as a lament is about reputation and doing good by a person, you know, by creating this description of their life and by showing the relationships between the dead and the living. So the words part is also important. Like we have Queen Arti Lyra is one of the most famous um, works in the Irish language, and that's a key. So uh, does the word come from the word Queen to, to cry? 
Yes, yeah. It okay. derives from the Irish word cleaner. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Usually <laughs> I want to guess these things I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so are, is, are there any traditions associated with the first person buried in a graveyard? Because I know in England there were these folk stories about the graveyard guardian who's the first, the soul of the first person there and they will sometimes manifest as like a crow or a rook uh, um, yes. or sometimes as a kind of like a black shuck, you know, like a, a black dog. Um, yeah. A ghostly, is, is there anything similar? Yes, the first burial in a graveyard is always kind of scary and fraught with meaning. So in the Irish context, they don't necessarily manifest themselves as animals afterwards. But the reason you don't want to be the first person buried is because you will be carrying the water for the others afterwards. So you're like a graveyard servant. Hmm. So to be the first person buried is, you know, potentially being trapped in a loop. Right. Um, so no one wants to be the first. Uh, and there is still in Irish culture a huge resistance to new graveyards. It's really wow. strong. Yeah. Uh, now, it, they don't articulate it by saying that, of course, <laughs> because it's the 21st century and we don't want to look ridiculous. But I think that strong belief has transmuted over time into other things, you know, other I mean, fears. Is it similar to people not building roads in certain ways because of fairy forts and stuff like that. I mean, that might be overdone a little bit, but yeah. you know, there, there, were, there were cases where that did happen up until the 1970s and stuff. You can look up. Is there anything about yew trees? I must ask. Cause, uh, oh, yew trees. Um, I really like them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I always mean, look out for them in a graveyard. Yes. They, I mean, they are associated very strongly with graveyards because they're planted to keep the cattle out, of course, um, because they're poisonous and one of the things that people found quite upsetting was seeing animals grazing on a grave space. Hmm. Um, because of course there's the residual fear of contamination of milk and flesh by, you know, eating grass from graves, which contains rotting bodies. You know, there's a kind of a taboo going on there. So they plant the ewes for that reason um, because they didn't really wall them very well. They were quite lax about keeping the walls up because dry stone walls fall down and you have to put them back up again. And maybe people were lazy and no one wanted to pay for it. So the ewes are part of the protection. But within the folklore and superstition itself, they don't really feature. They didn't become, they didn't become emblematic of anything. They, huh. They're just functional. Like there's no stories of them containing spirits. I haven't come across anything so far. I come across a lot of stuff that I, I presume is sort of 19th century romanticism about... You know, you know, their ideas about the Celts and stuff and how they, they, they presume that the, um, the yew trees must have been there before the graveyard was because it would have been a place of worship early, which I, I mean, I suppose is possible in, in some cases and yew trees can, can, can get very old indeed. Um, I think they're all descended from two somewhere in Northern Ireland. Ah, cool. There's, there's like the, the, the mother yew tree lives in Northern Ireland and every other yew tree is descended from that apparently. Can we talk about ghosts? What is, what is the place of ghosts in all of this? And, and is it different to other, do we have a ghost story tradition which is particular to our blend of Catholicism and, 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 and Celtic ideas? And, and is it different to other kinds? And um, I'm not sure really. I mean, the thing with ghosts and the dead, like the dead ghosts, right? That yeah. we would recognize as the dead is that they are usually coming back to ask people to fix something or to do a duty and to do a task. And I think that's common in a lot of cultures, you know, where the dead are demanding something extra. 
whether you know a gravestone or a different form of burial um, sometimes you know masses said over them or prayers you know so they're asking for extra um, but the actual Catholicism end of things I mean the Catholic Protestant thing in Ireland is important in burial terms because of the sectarian elements to the folklore so you were asking about the first person buried in the graveyard there's a story from Ballincollig in County Cork yes which you Represent. know what <laughs> <laughs> um, in which like there's a new graveyard right and someone yeah. has to be buried in it first the Catholics do not want to be buried in the graveyard first, but numerically, they're probably most likely it's going to happen to them because there's way more of them. Yeah. Um, so they uh, slaughter a pig and bury a pig and claim oh. it's like the first burial. Oh. Right. So that's a Catholic pro that's framed in a Catholic Protestant <laughs> conflict way. Right. right? <laughs> but incorporates elements of other folklore that would be common across Europe, fear of first burial. So, and within Irish belief, there's also in the earlier, like in the early modern period, um, graveyards were thought to move physically to avoid contamination by, you know, the wrong sort of person. What? <laughs> yeah, there's one um, near, you know, when you're coming out from the city out, uh, along St. like Our Lady's Hospital for the Mentally Ill. Yeah, if yeah, you pass yeah. that and you drive along that ridge, uh, there's a place called, in Irish, Mauteha, mm -hmm. and it has a very famous story of a walking graveyard. So the graveyard walked, like appears in different places at different times? Like the uh, well, islands the, off the west? <laughs> <laughs> the story is that there are um, gravestones in a place that is now no longer a burial ground. Oh. And the story is that the original burial ground walked somewhere else because it wanted to avoid this dude being buried in it, who was an evil Sosnock type. And, <laughs> oh dear. And the, the stones got up and walked and they moved somewhere else. Oh, I love um, it. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so there is, there is Catholic, Protestant, Irish, English conflict within those stories. Um, oh, that's amazing. But you know, you can see how folklore can sometimes reflect the kind of the political and social tensions of an area, but yet incorporate elements of the, you know, the persistent belief, you know, that yeah. graves can become alive. Excellent. Um, I don't know, do we want, um, just thinking about the, the short story again. Um, in, in, yes. So like the, the Dean and have feature fairly, fairly largely in this as well. Do they factor into this story at all or are they, is that, a, is that a completely different tradition or how are they mixed up? Yeah, the, the fairies, like they're a whole other body of lore on their own because they are so, they play so many roles in the Irish canon of folklore. You know, they're tricksters, they're royalty, um, they allow people to test their wits against them. You can earn your fortune if you win. They're terrifying, of course, because yeah. you meet them in the dark night and sometimes they're big and black and scary. So they they perform lots of roles. In the original Taigo Cahoin, they don't really play much of a role apart from introducing the corpse. And the corpse could be said to be a fairy corpse as well. Um, it's not in any way seen as a, it's not described almost as a human corpse, but then it's being buried 
it's looking for burial in burial places and that suggests it is human. So it's quite confusing. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated by the, the, the folks writing at, at different times in history where they're like, okay, we're Catholics and we're talking about this through a Catholic worldview, but the fairies are real. You know, they just, <laughs> we, 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 we push them underground you know, yes. so that they're not as important anymore. They're like the old gods who've been, who've been kicked off stage. Oh, but they're still out there and they're still dangerous and you still shouldn't, you know, walk down lonely roads by yourself at night. I, I really like, yeah. I, I don't know. I like the way those two worldviews come together sometimes. I think it's the persistence of luck as a concept. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, Christianity and religion in general isn't into luck, you know. Yeah. Luck is too random. Good fortune, that's ridiculous. You have to earn it or you have to be a good person or you say the right prayers. Luck, that's a completely pagan concept. It's godless. Mm. It just favors you sometimes and it doesn't and no one knows why. Um, so the fairies, we, you know, like for example, with, with um, after the body has been washed, yeah? So there's water in a bowl, which has been used to wash a dead body. So it has to be disposed of in a certain manner, you know, in order not to bring luck or bad luck into the house. And it's the same with loads of these little superstitions around disposal of, you know, rotten food or all sorts of things. It's all about fairies and luck. And luck is antithetical to religion. So that's why... You know, that's why churches don't like fairies, because they're about luck. And that's wrong. You should earn your, your good fortune. Well, I, I like that. I've never thought of it that way. I wonder if, like, there's something in us that we, we like the, the rules and the structure, and we, we like a universe that behaves according to known rules, but we also like to have the opportunity to bend the rules occasionally. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. And what is Ireland but a whole system for trying to bend the rules? Chancers. <laughs> Chancers. Or uh, I believe in German, they're called Lebenskunstler, life artists. Oh, nice. It's, it's yeah. a bit like what, what online people say, life hacks now, isn't it? Yeah, it's like there's a commitment there to not doing anything by the rules, isn't there? Life artist. <laughs> You're dedicated to it. I think my favorite part of this story is at the end when Hellboy meets the, he meets the fairies again and um, they're depicted as these kind of like, like noble, but di they're like a noble, but dying race, you know, they're powerful, um, but their, their time is coming to an end. And um, the, the main sort of lead fairy guy says to him, the, you know, he, 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 they're angry that he's got the child back and the the fairy says to him like you know we wouldn't have done anything bad for him we would have raised him as one of our own and he would have been fine and he says no living child of our race has been born into this century and no more will ever come we know this the years beat upon us like the ocean upon a stone we are worn away and it's kind of sad like a, the passing of a, of a world yes I, I like that. i mean in the original tale they don't come across as fading at all they are they are scary and vibrant. Now they don't appear at the end again because Tyg has done his job. He has fulfilled the quest that he was given and he has buried the body um, and chastened and aware that he has come this close to <laughs> losing everything. He goes home, is nice to his father, marries the girl he got pregnant and lives happily ever after. So you have to be nice to the fairies. But they will, there isn't there this, it will in the story anyway, there's this um, theme that like they will, they're dangerous, but they will play by the rules. Like you have to, yes. 
if you play by their rules, they have to like even if they don't want you to give you what they said they would like. If you if you beat them, they will give you the child back or whatever, even though they're they'll throw a hissy fit. I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is the funny thing about them is that if you fulfill the quest according to their terms, you will actually get what it was, pot it's of like gold or whatever. They appear, haha! I'm gonna I've come out of my hole in the ground and I'm gonna take you down to the dark world. And you're like, oh, but I've I turned around three times and you know threw a silver coin on the ground and spat in it. Now you have to let me go. And they're like, oh, curses. Damn it! <laughs> There's nothing I can do. <laughs> um, is there anything anything we haven't covered yet that you'd like to mention? That um, I think the one thing that is interesting about Irish beliefs is the Killeen, which has gotten so much attention. Um, and there is this belief that it is for the burial of unbaptized infants. And that makes sense, apart from the fact that there aren't Killeens in cities where there are a lot of babies dying in a small space. Mm -hmm. So I'm always a bit skeptical of that as the only explanation for their existence, because Killeens are found largely in the west of Ireland and in remote areas, like at the very edge of farmland. So if you go to West Cork, you have to go quite high to find a Killeen, you know? Um, so although the burial of the unbaptized is something that's important because of the absolute fundamental importance of baptism in the Catholic system, especially. Um, there just aren't enough like babies in general being buried in cities. Like, cause I've looked at loads of registers and there aren't a lot of infants being buried according to the register, but that doesn't match with the fact that there are huge mortality rates. So babies are being buried. They're just not being recorded, I think. Mm. And part of the reason for that is that Infants who die very soon after birth are kind of not fully integrated into the concept of the family. You know, they just haven't become part of the family. And so they don't get buried in family graves. And it's just a different attitude to early infancy that leads people to bury them differently. Um, and also these Killeens in rural Ireland contain all sorts of different people. They contain children up to the age of seven. Hmm. Um, and seven by seven people would have been baptized okay yeah <laughs> because yeah, of course yeah. i mean in fact everybody would have been baptized by whoever gave birth to them because oh. uh, anyone can baptize women can baptize oh. and midwives could baptize and the idea is that so like literally like a toe pokes out and the baby can be baptized from just a toe oh. so what's important about baptism isn't just that, but it's because you're, the, the priest is doing it. You know, there's two types of baptism, the one you pay for from the priest and the one your mammy can do at home when you've had the baby. I was going to ask if, if it was ex as expensive as getting mass done at your funeral. Clearly that was going to be a problem. <laughs> no, you see, that's the thing. Uh, last rites and baptism are cheap. Right. Yeah. Death in Texas. Yes. <laughs> yes. And because everyone has to have them. They are doctrinally essential. Um, having masses said over your soul actually isn't as doctrinally essential, yeah. Oh. Or masses said at, you know, your burial. Um, so the reason those children are there up until the age of seven is seven is the age of reason. And it's at that point that you can kind of become almost like a, a more adult person within the Christian community. So yes. clearly under the age of seven, it's a slightly different attitude to children. And also if people have intellectual impairments, 
they never reach an age of reason. So they would be buried there as well. So it's a kind of a special place for those who are not quite fully integrated into the rest of either family or Christian conceptions of society, which is why sometimes suicides were buried there too, because mm. they are they are cast out of normal graveyards up until the 19th century, certainly. And the word Killeen just it just it means little little church or little little church, yeah. C I L L in Irish kill means church. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And so place names that begin with K-I-L-L are derived from that. So it means something to do with church. Yeah. And I just want to press you on the word, on the word chapel there out, out of yeah. interest. So that, um, like, is, is that a generic word just meaning, you know, place of worship? Or is there, is there actually a connection? Because the, the, the Templars were in Ireland and there are place names that are perhaps due to that i know it's a little bit sketchy uh, yeah i mean in the ones there's a lot that, of nonsense written about them as well let's, yes let's there is <clears throat> i mean in cork city the templars were associated with saint john's which is now gone entirely both the graveyard and the church there's no unless you knew it was there on a map you wouldn't know it was there um and there is no with when i think about outside cork city there is uh, Temple Breedy, which is outside Crosshaven. So that's Chample Breedy. And I don't know, I just can't see that the Templars have gone all the way up to that hill in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just too far away from everything that's interesting. I can believe that they were in city centres if you want to, you know, if yeah. you want to push it. Yeah. I can accept that. But the middle of nowhere, not so much. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Aoife, what's your favourite um, uh, superstition or folktale that you've come up with while doing research on this? Oh, my favourite one. Um, that's a really difficult one. I think some of the ones associated with, um, with the famine actually are really affecting. And there's one that really intrigues me. It's from Cavan, in which um, a father's child dies in the workhouse. And he returns to the workhouse burial ground and uh, he digs her out of it and he puts her in a basket. This is a bit like Tide's story. Mm, yeah. He puts her in one of those big, big wicker baskets that you can carry on your back, uh, walks to walks about, to, you know, 10 kilometers to his family burial place. And when he takes her out of the basket, he dresses her in his coat and he buries her because he wasn't happy that she would be buried among the paupers. And I think that's a really interesting example of the importance of a family burial performed by family members with due care and attendance and with the love and respect that people expected, but which in cases of famine and disease, all of that falls apart because people have no money and everyone is very sick and there are just so many people dying that it's really difficult to keep on top of the rate of burial. Um, but I just think that's a really affecting story about what Irish people want from a burial, you know, what, yeah. what's important. Like that's that. why I like it. Do you have a favorite location for like, where, where there's a, a story associated with a particular church or a graveyard, maybe in County Cork or somewhere? Ah, favorite location. Hmm. I'm always on the on the hunt for more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Temple Breedy outside Crosshaven has a great story about a feud with the neighbouring parish over burying a priest. Um, it appears in the Folklore Commission school collection. 
And that seems to have been something where priests' burials were kind of contested. I've seen it come up a few times where they talk about the burial of a priest in other places. So obviously burying important people could be the occasion for fighting with your neighbors over who got the honor of burying them. And I think they they went and they stole the body from a neighboring place and brought it by boat and then buried it there. And, you know, it's it's wild. <laughs> I don't know if it's really happened, but who cares? Yeah. I, I, in my head now, I'm imagining that they were, you know, shooting uh, like muskets at each other, you know, <laughs> in the street. <laughs> right. I think we're coming towards the end for, for time reasons. Um, where can people find your work online or your show or what, what creative projects would you like to uh, promote so we can send people shameless your, your promotion time yeah, as shameless, shameless as you can make it <laughs> so um my podcast is censored and it's pretty much everywhere you get podcasts from start with Acast if you want i am on twitter as at censored pod where i post um interesting covers of books there's often quite a lot of uh, bulging biceps and barely their clothing because the pulp art is just the best <laughs> Margaret Brundage for the win. Yeah. <laughs> She's my favorite. <laughs> like a lot of these books were surely banned just because of the cover. I don't think anyone read the first page. They were like, oh my God, there's a busty blonde. We have that, to that's ban That's a running it. theme on your show. It's like, they, no way did they read past like the first chapter of this. They didn't need to. No way. <laughs> no, they were just like, oh, naked ladies, quick, ban it. Um, so that's where I am on Twitter. And I have a blog on my other project, which is irishgarrisontowns.com. And sometimes there's a few graveyard bits in there, but soldier burials, which is how I started off looking at burial, actually, was because I was looking at how the army buried the soldiers and the women and children who followed the soldiers. So it kind of all started from there. So that's really where I am. You can find me anywhere. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking on the show. Thank you, Kian. It was great. Always a pleasure. that is it for this episode folks so as always please feel free to get in touch let us know what you think on twitter we are at strange ireland on instagram we are wide atlantic weird podcast if you want to help out the show uh, you can buy me a coffee over at buy me a coffee forward slash wide atlantic that is a once-off non-committal way of showing some support otherwise you can also help out by maybe sharing something we've done online or uh, taking an episode you've enjoyed and sharing it with somebody who else who you think might like it and until next time please stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You would prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.